you a high performer obsessed with growth and looking for an edge? Welcome to Mind Body Peak Performance. Together, we'll discover underground secrets to unlocking the full potential of your mind, body, and spirit. We'll learn from some of the world's leading minds, from ancient wisdom to cutting edge tools and everything in between. This is your host, Nick Urban. Enjoy the episode. What do the world's very greatest elite athletes do differently than the rest of us? I'll give you a hint. It's not just training. Hi, I'm Nick Urban, host of the Mind Body Peak Performance Podcast. And in this episode, I have the pleasure of bringing to you secrets from high performance. In this episode, we'll deconstruct what it is that the very best athletes are doing so that they excel and continue to reach new levels of performance, how they beat their own performance and stay composed under all of that pressure. Throughout this episode, I kept asking, how does this apply to the boardroom as well? Because many of these same principles apply to anyone doing just about anything. You don't have to be an elite athlete to gain from some of the topics that we discuss. Our guest also helps break down where it's best for you to focus, giving you simple, actionable tools to determine if it's your physiology or it's your psychology or it's something completely different. We discuss the power of self-monitoring, even if it's something as seemingly simple as your body weight. In the episode, we also discuss some of the common mistakes, myths, and pitfalls that commonly hold people back. I really liked our guest's distinction between elite performance and high performance. You may never try and beat a world record for something, but we can all perform at a high level every single day. Our guest this week is Shamal Valabji. Shamal is a South African-born sports scientist and performance coach with over two decades of on-field experience coaching elite athletes. He's worked with the Indian and South African cricket, Davis Cup, and Olympic teams. And he's spent years as a performance coach on the ATP Tour. Shamal is a three-time author, host of numerous shows on ESPN, Star Sports, and Nat Geo. And he's an ultramarathoner. Shamal's also on the teaching team at Stanford Business School and an executive coach to numerous Fortune 500 and 1,000 companies. If you'd like to check out his personal community, it's called Inside the Locker Room. And if you use the code MINDBODY, that will get you 20% off for life. You can find him on Instagram at Shamal, S-H-A-Y-A-M-A-L, and linkedin.com slash in slash Shamal, spelled the same way, Volubji. V-A-L-L-A-B-H-J-E-E. If that's too complicated to remember, the link to everything we discuss and more will be in the show notes at mindbodypeak.com slash 137. Okay, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Shamal Valabji. Shamal, welcome to Mind Body Peak Performance. Thank you so much, Nick. I'm thoroughly excited to be here. And I've been looking forward to this conversation for some time. Yes, me too. And when I first met you, I was telling you that I actually came across your work long before I even started a podcast. 
And I'm excited to be having this conversation with you right now. Thank you very much. I was very humbled by, uh, by the fact that you stumbled across some of my work earlier on. And uh, it just made this entire experience a little bit more exciting for me. Perfect. Well, let's begin today with something unusual about your line of work that will foreshadow the rest of this episode to get people to understand why this is such an important topic to cover, whether they're a professional athlete, they're a weekend warrior, or they're just someone who's interested in performing at their best. So something interesting about my work is, well, my journey in life has really moved a large part from looking at physiology and biomarkers biomarkers and biohacking to, uh, I think over the course of the last decade, I've been really putting a magnifying glass on personality markers and how they respond to stress. And I think it's very, very fascinating for everyone because when you look at peak performance in any shape and form, what it boils down to is a person's ability to handle stress at the height And that is a factor of cognition. And it's an aspect that we do not look after. It's an aspect we do not understand. It's an aspect that we understand is important, but very few people peel away the layers of it. And it's really been a core part of my work for the last six years as such with professional footballers. And I'm excited to delve into that. And luckily, that's not one of those things that we're stuck with. We have the ability to train and to make better decisions under stress because a lot of the things like communication or even performance tend to be a lot easier when there's no stress. But once you add on the stress, it becomes a whole, a whole different ballgame. Well, let's begin today with the unusual non-negotiables you've done for your health, your performance, and your bioharmony. Okay, so I have lived a life as a vegetarian my entire life. So one of the things that is non-negotiable for my health is one day in every single month for the better part of, I think, almost 17, 18 years right now, I do a full detox, a full fast, you know, on water only. So that is a non-negotiable. And that part has come from spirituality, which we can talk about a little bit more uh, around there. A non-negotiable for me for performance is counterintuitively, a lot of people think to raise the bar of performance, you need to go really, really hard. So a non-negotiable for me is actually to be easy and effortless in the training and to build volume in that there. So whilst even with my athletes, we're not pushing the glass ceiling every single time. We're actually building volume and building capacity through easy and effortless, effortless states. And, uh, and that for me is a non-negotiable for performance. Bioharmony. You know, I really love the word bioharmony. I used to uh, use the word biohack. And a long time ago, I switched to that because uh, I didn't like the word hack. Hack signifies shortcut. And I kept telling people that the human body has got centuries of intelligence in it. And I felt we came with such a level of ignorance that we think in 30 seconds by doing one simple thing, we can circumnavigate decades and centuries and lifetimes of intelligence you know so that word really never resonated with me so i really like this term bioharmony i think you were one of the first people who used it uh one of the things that are non-negotiable for me for bioharmony is the connection between and i'm going to talk a little bit more about this 
the connection between your voice and your brain. So whenever you are doing anything, if you're doing something really difficult, like running a marathon or climbing a mountain and you need motivation, you tend to tell yourself, come on, you can do this and you push for it. You know, So most people use that relationship between voice and brain for performance when they need to push past the barrier. But that connection is sacrosanct and can be used in so many different ways to connect you to nature, to bring your body to relaxation, to help you reflect and introspect. And for me, the voice-brain connection is a way in which I harmonize with my entire environment and all the elements around me. So that is something very unusual. I've not heard too many people speak about it, but it's something that's very sacred to me. That's very cool. What on a practical level does that look like? How are you actually using that connection? Like, are you doing any daily activities to like foster or strengthen that connection? So one of the one of the daily daily activities that I do is after, for example, when I wind down my day and I get into bed after everything is done, I literally speak to myself saying that, "Hey, I'm giving myself shamal. I give myself permission to relax. I give myself permission to unwind." Without me saying that, the brain is still subconsciously tense and you find that the quality of sleep, sometimes you struggle to fall asleep 45 minutes, an hour later. Just by giving yourself permission to unwind, you're using this link here and you're allowing the body to really and truly just settle into that. So even when I'm practicing breath work on a day-to-day basis, I tell myself, okay, I give myself permission to surrender to this breath. I give myself permission to allow this breath to bring into my body stillness. You know? So with everything, I use voice as the first level of prompt to get my brain to switch on to that activity. Oh, that's cool. And this is a verbal out loud. You're actually saying this. Yeah, it's not necessarily out loud that someone else can, can hear it, but I can definitely hear it to myself, yes. Okay, okay. So you're saying it in your mind. You're not necessarily saying it out loud for the rest of the people around you to hear. Yeah, yeah. I'm saying it in my mind, but I am, I am maybe mouthing the words in some shape and form as opposed to it just being like an affirmation in the mind. I am mouthing it because I'm trying to bring that connection in. Okay, let's go on to your background now. How did you get involved in the world of elite sports and sports science? And as I saw it described in your Instagram, the locker room leadership for the boardroom. Yeah, thanks, Nick. So, Nick, I grew up in South Africa, and I wanted to play professional cricket, and I was probably at the height of the apartheid. And little did I know that opportunities for people of color were restricted. So I grew up playing cricket. I was in the South African under-15, under-16, under-18 teams. But when I turned 18, the opportunities in state-level cricket and national-level teams were very, very restricted. I think at that stage when I was playing there was literally one per, one position per person of color per team. And, you know, it didn't matter how good you were. It was, they stuck to that quota. So that was very, very disappointing for me. And uh, immediately I had to make a, a decision and I wasn't ready to really leave sport. You know, I still wanted to stay in sport. So the first thing I did was I transitioned to start studying. And the only career that was available to me was sport science which was in the Faculty of Education at the University of Durban-Westport. So I, I took that on there. And, and because I was studying it, 
the, the cricket team, uh, the national cricket teams paid for it. And immediately at 18, I transitioned onto the coaching team as such. So I was one of the assistant coaches that was working and then the strength and conditioning coach working with our national teams. So I was quite fortunate in that the transition was literally overnight. And I had to fast track a lot of my learning. I literally had to study overnight, learn everything because the application of it was in there. But that was the first lever that I had to pull to work as a professional coach. And, and it's been, and I've been at that cutting edge of performance for it's now, I think, uh, 22, 23 years. Yeah, that's quite the history. And then now you are working with a lot of the top athletes and teams around the world. Yes. Currently, I'm traveling with the Indian football team. I also travel and spend weeks on the ATP tour. I advise a lot of the Indian and South African Olympic athletes in various codes of sport. Uh, we do a significant amount of work in cricket as well with the Indian national team and the IPL franchises. So uh, the number of sports that I work in is, is quite large and quite varied. And uh, I like it like that because it gives me the opportunity to do research in both team and individual sports. The book you wrote, Breathe, Believe, Balance, A Guide to Self-Discovery and Healing, is a lot about the relationship between the body and mind and this show. We cover that in depth. And from your experience, let's go into the performance world. What are some of the observations, realizations, and things you think that are important to cover regarding performance based on your experiences? So the first thing, uh, Nick, we, when, when we talk about performance, there are a few things I think it's important for everyone to understand. There's a big difference between what is high performance and what is elite performance. So I work in the elite performance world. You know, uh, high performance means that you are doing certain things, bringing in certain interventions that are raising your game. So where you are, you're going from A to B and raising your own performance. Raising your performance doesn't necessarily mean you're anywhere close to world class or close to an elite standard. Elite performance means that the gold standard has already been established and you're trying to close the gap between where you are to there and go beyond. So in elite performance, the gold standard is established. High performance is really and truly an introspective journey of how can you get better in some shape and form. That uh, once we start to understand the difference between these two here, we start to understand where we are with respect to that. Now, when I look at the relationship between the body and the mind, there's a few interesting things that we look at. In elite performance, everything is the relationship between what we call the floor and the ceiling, which is what not too many people think about. Now, the ceiling is elite performance. Raising the floor is high performance. So raising the floor is what you can do every single day. And really and truly, it's what people should be focusing on. Now, when you look at the ceiling and the floor of one's capacity, when you're pushing the ceiling, when elite athletes are pushing the ceiling, right, they are breaking world records. When the average person is raising the floor, then what they're doing is they are practicing the art and science of longevity. They are increasing their health span and their lifespan. So this is critically important. And the last thing that's really, really important for everyone to understand is that longevity and elite performance are counterintuitive sciences to each other. 
you know, what you do to live long and healthy will not win you an Olympic medal. And what you do to win an Olympic medal would not ensure that you live forever and healthy. You know, these are two completely counterintuitive sciences to each other. And yes, we borrow learnings and research from each other, but you need to be very intuitive in terms of how you want to apply those things. But there's definitely not a direct application between these two. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that distinction because I was going to interject and say that exact thing that just because you're doing something that will put you in elite performance, if you get that ability, that's not going to necessarily be good for your health span or the quality of your years as you age. It might be great for your performance in the short term, but not necessarily the long term. And in fact, like the harder you go, the more you charge forward, the more you tax your body at the same time. So although increasing your performance to an elite level and in, in trying to breaking records might be great for your accomplishment and for showing the world what's possible. It, just by focusing on the high performance, which is attainable to everyone, that is where you get the, the biggest gains of both like quality of life and at the same time, health span and your own personal satisfaction of improving. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, to, to everyone who's looking to improve, I always ask them, I said, Really and under, really and truly, put the pin in the ground. Where do you want to go? Elite performance is a very, very expensive game. You know, it's an extremely expensive game. And and I laugh and joke. You know, I did a little bit of work with the Kenyan marathon runners. So you know, there was uh, Dennis Kamito and Elliot Kipchoge, and uh, you know, the all the amazing ladies that were running. So I used to tell them, you know, you could put they they running the marathon at about. When I was spending time in Eaton, Kenya, they were running it at about 202, 203. That's where they were. You could take a stone and literally hit anyone in that village and they would run a marathon under 215, right? That, that's just the community that they were. And I said, you could put any one of those runners in a pair of Bata Tuffy school shoes and they would run a marathon in 215. But for them, you know, when you put them in a pair of, you know, new boots that have a carbon fiber plate in it, it's dropping from 203 to 202, right? But it's not going to move you from four and a half hours to 330, you know? And there's a lot more you can do to close that gap. But, and it's an expensive investment that you're doing. So when you understand what you're trying to get, you're able to tangibly understand where to invest, what to invest in, and how to invest to get those gains. Otherwise, it just becomes a splurge of money without much results. So what's critically important with everything is, uh, is clarity of thought. And the best way of describing this, Nick, is I tell this to everyone when I give a corporate talk, and we, we are mentioning the boardroom just now. I said, you don't have to know anything about any sport. But if you go on the sidelines and you watch a professional athlete practice, you know, in under five minutes, you can guess what he's trying to master just by watching the way he practices. You know, because why? He has so much of clarity with what he wants to achieve that it translates in execution. Now, you go into a gym, right, where they're only amateurs and novices, and you could spend a year there and you still don't know what that guy's trying to achieve because 
the lack of clarity in what he's trying to get to is translating in the lack of execution or clarity in how he's executing in there. So clarity of thought is really the fundamental, you know, it's the holy grail of performance, knowing what you're going after first. If you don't know what you're going after, you'll never get it. It's so true. Back when I was first getting into exercise science and everything, people would ask me like about like creating a plan for them. And I thought the best concept was just to maximize overall health and well-being. And so I give them like this elaborate plan and completely forget that like what they're training for and their specific goals really dictate the entire plan. That not everyone wants just like good long health span and wants to do like five different types of training mixed into their weekly routine. And so then after I realized like if you want to excel at a sport, you have to train that, those sport-specific movements and train them often and really master that movement because, sure, you can do like the big compound lifts, for example, but they're not going to translate to your sport the same way as sport-specific movements will. Absolutely. That, the, the individual, the principle of specificity in exercise science is absolutely critical. And in psychology, we call it transference. You know, transference means that for a skill to move from practice into competition with the same degree of efficiency, those practice situations need to mimic competition situations in terms of state of pressure and competitiveness. Yeah. And also like biomechanics, for example, like if you train every day running on a treadmill, you go to run an actual marathon, it's going to be a very different experience. Okay. So what is the threshold? Like if you want to go to elite performance and you want to improve, say you're not quite at the like, two minute mark or two hour mark in terms of your timings and everything, how do you decide where to focus? This is interesting. I work on three levers. The first lever is uh, because of, with elite performance, it's a lot easier. So let's assume the gold standard right now is sitting at about two hours for the marathon. Okay. If you look at 4% from two hours, okay. If you are not within a 4% striking range of that, then it, it pretty much means your physiology is not up to scratch, which means that you're either not strong enough or you're not doing enough training mileage. You know, you just not have the physical capacity. So 4% from the gold standard is, uh, you need to be under that there for everything else to kick in. If you're over 4%, then physiology is the biggest lever that you need to pull on, which means look at your training methodology, look at your biomechanics, look at your load management, look at your recovery, any, everything related to nutrition and body. Uh, let's assume you cross the 4% threshold and you're sitting between uh, 4 and 2%. If you're sitting between there, then we can get performance gains using good strategy and using good technique and having a very tactical approach to it even changing of equipment, like for example, using lighter shoes or putting carbon fiber plates or getting a different type of shorts or getting more uh, scientifically accurate energy gels for when you're taking it and your hydration. Those things kick in when the gap is about, uh, when, the, when you've got between a 4 and a 2% gap. And, and actually that can even get you right up to, to the finish line with respect to or on par with that standard. And then the psychological lever can give you anywhere between a 1% to 2% gain, but not consistently on a particular day, depending on if there's enough external motivating factors around. 
there. And, you know, I was talking to someone and uh, they were looking at the, the, the entire build-up to getting the famous runner, Elliot Kipchoge, to, to break sub two. Uh, Nike was, was working on that. And, uh, you know, they tested everything. I, I worked and I spoke closely with the team that did it. They looked at the nutrition. They looked at the training. They looked at the regime. They got the, the pacing team. They picked the perfect conditions. They did everything. And the first time he, he tried to attempt it, he fell, I think it was about 20 seconds short of it there. And then he repeated it again. And uh, the second time that he did it, I think it was in Italy, uh, he surpassed, he broke uh, two hours. And one of the interesting things for me, which should have been done in the first attempt, was they should have had his family there, his kids and his wife present on the first, which they weren't, but they were there for the second. And I said, that is one of the external factors that I'm talking about that can give you that extra push when you're right at the brink. That's the psychology that I'm talking about. That's the team talk. That is the motivation that gets you to dig a little bit deep. But that lever can't be pulled every single time. It can be pulled very, very specifically. And in the world of sport, when it comes to psychology, we say something interesting. We say that when motivation does not exist, discipline must take over which means that you had to have had the routine, the hard work. You've had to have pushed and pushed and pushed for that to have actually uh, got you as close as that. So what we're talking about is all of these strategies are less than 5%. So if you're above 5% off of elite performance, you're going to need to focus on the, the basics and getting your physiology right, the underlying physiology right. Champions do the basics the best. There's a very, very good chance that if you are nowhere close to 5%, your body is nowhere as strong and not just strong enough for one event. So this is important for everyone listening to understand. When I'm saying your body is not strong enough, it doesn't mean you're not strong enough to run one marathon. No, it means that your body is not strong enough to sustain all of the training load to close the gap. That's what I'm talking about. People often mistake it and say, oh, the body 5% is such a negligible difference. We, they can run a marathon. I said, it's not about the marathon. It's about repeating 150 to 200 kilometers a week so that you can close the gap on that two minutes repetitively for three to six months. So that is where that strength and that physiology comes in. Does this apply to all like, elite performance across sports or is it mostly just for endurance? It's not for endurance. It applies to pretty much all sports. You can quantify it. But having said that, in games, you know, when a sport is purely phys physiological, so uh, 100 meters, 200, 400, 800, short parts, things that are purely physiological, the application is more direct and stronger. When you're playing a game like cricket or golf, sometimes uh, skill and technique circumnavigates physiology. And we see this a lot. So for some example, someone could be carrying a little bit of extra body fat. They could be slightly unfit, and yet they could still perform in the exact same manner and, and win it. So physiology is important for practice, but it's not a predetermining factor to success when you look at games. But when you're looking at track and field, it's definitely a predetermining factor. And then you also differentiate between athletes that are good and the athletes that are great. Yeah, I talk about uh, not just athletes, I talk about teams, teams that are good, that are great. So what I try to get everyone to understand is that 
if you are looking at these athletes from the outside, from 30,000 feet, you're going to see that both of them are probably putting in four to five hours a day in training. Both of them are kind of watching their diet to some extent. Both of them have physios, doctors. They're going and doing their rehab. They're going and doing their recovery. They're, they're using somewhere similar to the best equipment. Everything, the optics are going to look really, really similar between a good athlete and an absolutely great athlete. It's only when you bring the magnifying glass closer and closer and closer, you're going to start to see the difference. And the difference is in the standards by which they apply. So, for example, you know, uh, the great athlete is, you know, if he's hitting a golf ball, he's not going to be happy with, he's going to want nine out of 10 to land, you know, within three feet of, of the pin. As he's approaching, he's going to want to hit every green in regulation. You know, they want they want the the standard that which they're applying. They're going to hold an extremely high standard, and they're going to practice till they get it right. Okay, uh, so when I talk about good and great teams, everything boils down to standards. So how do we describe it? We say that in a bad team, no one is accountable for the standards of practice, and as a result, the competition. The results you get are pure luck. In a good team, it's the management, it's the support staff that are responsible for the standards. They are the ones who are pushing you. So you've got a good core team. They're making sure you practice. They're making sure you eat well. They've got strong regimes. They're really governing everyone, and they're pushing you. If you slack off, they're on your case. These make good teams, and these teams could go on to win a championship in a season. But a great team, a team that's really great, a team that wins and sustains or builds a legacy over the decade. In that team there, every single athlete in the squad and everyone who enters maintains the standard of performance. Every single person is adhering to that same standard and making sure the person next to them maintains it. And this is beautifully described in, in a book called The Art of War by Sun Tzu. Sun Tzu says in The Art of War, the most important person in battle is the person standing next to you. And sport, team sport especially, it's a battle. It's a war. There's just no gun. So when he says the most important person is the person standing next to you, what does he mean? He means you've got to trust that guy. Because if you don't trust that person, you're going to look to your side. And once you look to the side, right, you're not looking where the threat is because the threat's coming from the front. Okay. So... Now, what's going to make you ensure that you don't look to the side? You have to trust that person. But what is trust? Trust is that he shows up every day and he works so hard based on the standards that the team has set. And you can see it. And he puts it in every day. That's the trust that creates psychological safety that makes sure you never have to look to the side and you can all move forward. That is such an important distinction. And I played on some good teams and some great teams. And you're absolutely right. When, when I would play on the great teams, I didn't have to look to my side because I knew that my brothers were there. They were showing up. They were putting in the work. If I needed them, I could like put my body in the line and they'd have my back. But like on the good teams, I didn't have that same confidence. And then my attention would get distracted for a brief split second. And that's enough in sports and in life to really disrupt your entire game. It's even, you see it in football as well. You look at the best football teams. It's so, I mean, we spend countless hours analyzing footballers. And in, in a bad team, 
they're waiting for the player to make a run before they kick the ball. In a good team, when they see the person there, then they kick the ball. In a great team, the person is not even looking. The ball's coming from here, and he's just flicking the ball in two-tenths of a second because he knows that someone will be there to receive it. Trust increases the speed at which things are executed. Right. So when you start trusting, things start happening from the subconscious mind very, very fast. It's such a good point, too, about training and showing up to practice every single day. For a lot of sports, it might seem unnecessary to get in those many reps. Why can't I just do this kind of stuff on my own? But at the same time, you're signaling inaudibly with your behavior, with your commitment, with your dedication, that you are there, you're all in, your teammates can count on you. And that's probably one of the, the big factors that's rarely recognized. One of the great things and one of the things you should really notice or I have at least pick up is that how does an athlete behave when he's injured? You know, you get an athlete who is injured, who does the rehab on his own, in at home, or he'll see the physio separately, or he doesn't have to be at practice because he can't practice, so he's not there. And then you get the athlete who does his rehab, goes 10 times to rehab, but never misses a practice session. He's there and he's just doing a little bit extra on the side all the time there. Right. Those go on to become phenomenal team players and phenomenal athletes. Because why? They're sending the right signals to everyone in the team. Yeah, I was just thinking that that it's one thing to be the designated leader or the team captain or whatever it is for your sport. But it's another to show up consistently to be the person who, if you get injured, you still show up, you still do your best, you still signal to everyone that I'm involved in this, I'm, you guys all matter, I'm here. And that applies both to the team on the field and then also in the, in the office. Like You don't need to have an official leadership title in order to lead via those act, types of actions, showing that you care about the team. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. In the corporate world, I, I often refer people to a book. Uh, it's called Scaling Up Excellence by Professor Hagi Rao from Stanford University. And in there, he's got a beautiful quote. He says, excellence is not one person moving a thousand steps forward. It's a thousand people taking one step forward. You know, And, and that is, that's the true true definition of excellence in every shape and form. And the only way a thousand people can take one step forward is when you just extend a little bit of yourself when you don't have to, you know, that's what, that's what organizations really and truly need to teach people. How do you do that? This is like the billion dollar question. How do you assemble that kind of team that really, whether it's in sports or in the office that acts that way? The first thing is, you know, because I work with national teams, we by 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 the nature of a national team, we always have the best people on there. But I think one of the critical things you need to do is there's a fine balance between giving people an opportunity and being clinical in carving out the weeds from that there. You have to be critical in setting the standards that that team needs to show up with. And you have to be transparent in how you maintain those standards. You know, very, very critical. Very often what happens is culture is eroded in a team when a person has made a mistake and those mistakes are swept under the carpet because of the nature of who they are and what they've done. You know, that is the biggest problem. 
You see, when you sweep things under the carpet, good people leave. A team doesn't become a bad team because good people perform badly. A team becomes a bad team because good people leave the room. And good people leave the room when you drop the standards. You've got to be absolutely clinical about the standards that you would accept. Like one of the very, very simple things in every locker room that I've worked on is that punctuality is absolutely non-negotiable. You know, one second late is as good as not showing up at all. Okay. And irrespective of who you are, right? If you're a second late, it's the end of your practice. Whether you're the captain, it doesn't matter who you are, you're gone. The day we break that rule there, we tell everyone else that it doesn't, you are, you are very, very different from him. You know, once you start doing that there, you have absolutely no control over who shows up, what show up. And the way that that starts to erode culture is in the quality of the efforts they start to put in. So nipping things in the bud and the way to do this is to have an established set of ground rules for every single team up front, right? And make sure that it's adhered to very, very clinically and very critically. Uh, given it's a little harder in, in, a, in a corporate space than a sports team, but you have to find ways to bring in that level of discipline, that level of punishment, which has to be somehow communicated and be transparent amongst everyone. So what would some uh, good examples of those types of things be? And also how important is the, the meat of them, the actual substance, what those rules, ground rules are versus the fact that they apply equally and every single time to each person? No two people are exactly the same. And as a, as a coach or as a leader, your first fundamental rule is to understand how to communicate with people. Once you understand how to communicate with them, you understand what motivates them and what drives them. Okay. Once as a leader, you also understand when you're setting a standard right up at the front, you would know as a leader who are the people who are most likely going to break this or who are the people who are not. Now, a leader's job also, very important, is you're not necessarily going to be a disciplinarian. You don't want to be a disciplinarian. And the leader's job is not to take this rule book and apply it directly because everyone should understand you're not a leader because you know how to apply a rule. You're a leader because you know how to apply the exception to the rule. That's the first important thing that you should know. You're not a leader because you know how to apply. Any idiot can apply a rule, right? You are a leader because sometimes there's an exception to a certain rule. And that is where your knowledge, your experience, your everything comes in. Okay. Now, how you choose to apply exceptions to preset rules that determine the standards of that team will determine the culture of this organization. It could either be a culture that's constantly eroding or it could be a culture of trust a culture of vulnerability, a culture that unifies and bonds them. So you have to understand as a leader, it's not about what the rules are. It's about the level of experience, the level of knowledge, the level of intuition and experience you bring to the exception every single time that rule is broken. How do you deal with that exception? Is that warranted or not? You know, that would determine everything. Because remember, 
everyone will always have a justifiable reason for everything that's broken. Yeah, and then as we've already mentioned several times, a big part of this is the relationship between performance and stress and maintaining and building composure while under stress. What is your approach there? I talk about the three C's, uh, Nick, when it comes to... So I come from, like I've mentioned a few times, the world of elite sport. So when you look at someone winning an Olympic medal, winning a World Cup, okay, the performance on that day has been repeated a million times by that athlete in many games and many situations. So what is the differentiating thing on that particular day or that particular moment? What is it that makes winning an Olympic medal at an Olympic stage so high? When they've run the distance the same, the conditions are the same, everything's the same. It's that that moment is not an ordinary moment. It is a special moment. And it's special because it's the peak of pressure. And the reason why that moment is special is because when the pressure is at its highest, the spotlight is the greatest, which means your ability to get noticed is at its greatest. This is why Michael Jordan says pressure is a privilege because when there's so much pressure there, you have the privilege to get noticed. You have the privilege to get acknowledged. You have the privilege to shine. I tell my my athletes all the time, I said, you guys are so lucky. When you wear your national shirt and you go on, in 90 minutes, you can do something that lifts an entire nation. Most people would work their whole lifetime and not have the ability to do what you can do in 90 minutes. That is a privilege, but that comes with pressure as well. So what makes one able to cope with pressure at that level? Well, for me, there are three things. The first thing that I speak about is is competence, is the having the technical competence and having the knowledge of how to apply a certain skill set in a situation, how to assess the variables, know your competition, know your game, know your strengths, know all of that. The second one is Eric Anderson speaks a lot about this, which is the 10,000-hour rule. And I'm not quoting the 10,000-hour rule, but I talk about the practice. The 10,000-hour rule is significant of putting in countless hours of practice to master a skill. What does that do? That builds confidence, which is the second lever. To be able to be, to be composed at the height of pressure, you need to have a level of confidence in your ability to execute a skill, which comes from countless hours of practice. And the third, probably the most critical lever is conditioning. You need to have a body that is mentally and physically resilient enough to withstand all of the external and physical stresses still remain calm enough to be able to think clearly and execute that skill. So body conditioning is critically important. If these three levers are in place, there's a very good chance you'll be a little more composed than anyone else on that field. And the probability of executing a skill at that pressure increases quite significantly. One person is crumbling under pressure and one person is thriving under pressure. But if you look at the skills, both of those people's skills are roughly relatively close to each other. That's why they're at that level. If you look at their physiology, they're relatively close. If you look at their practice, they're relatively close in how they're putting it. The composure, the bringing together of all of that in that critical moment is actually the defining thing. The person who's able to remain calmer, and we can test this. We've been able to test it and see it, that a person 
their resting heart rates are a lot lower, their heart rate variability is a lot higher, they're a lot more composed in that moment, they're able to neurologically think clearer, they're able to assess variables clearer and execute in accordance with that. That's amazing. And I want to dig into that as well. Like these biomarkers of like physiology and personality, because a lot of people might have a wearable, say the Aura Ring or the Apple Watch or the Whoop or something. And just because you have one and you see the metrics, that doesn't necessarily mean you're getting anything out of it. And I know from our previous conversation that you've been able to do some pretty incredible things with some of these assessments and the tools you have at your disposal. Yeah, you know, Nick, I, I'm, I'm a sucker for data. I love data. But I just want everyone to know that a professional athlete on a day-to-day basis, there are times when we measure and there are times when we're just practicing. And we're not measuring every single day. And we're not analyzing every single day. We may be capturing data, but we're not looking at it all the time, you know. So most average people are so pedantic about what they're capturing that, you know, they forget the importance of it and they don't even understand how to use it. So I see a million people using the Aura Ring and the Whoop, for example, every day. And I ask them, okay, that's interesting. Uh, when you wake up in the morning, what's your HRV score? And they'll give me a number and say, oh, it's 34. I said, great. So what have you done to adjust your day on the basis of that? He said, nothing. So I said, so what happens? You go through your day and then you sleep and then you wake up next morning like a lottery and see what's there, you know? And, uh, and I said, yeah, pretty much. So that's the, that's the big problem with most people is we're capturing data and we're getting into the habit of looking at it, but we don't understand what it is, what does it infer and how can we use it? That's the big difference with athletes is that every time we look at a data point, we make an adjustment to our training regime, to our day, to our routine, right? To accommodate for that data point, because that data point has been a signal to us in some shape and form. So one of the key things, for example, we look at is uh, heart rate for everyone listening. Heart rate is the most stable data point in the entire ecosystem of biomarkers, right? So you can wake up in the morning and check your resting heart rate and, and most uh, professional athletes, if you if you have an endurance-based sport, would be sitting anywhere from uh, mid to low 30s to mid to low 40s. That's generally where you are, depending on what sport you play. That's a very, very stable data point. For that data point to even move one in your trend line would take anywhere from four to six weeks. So the stability in that is good. It's very good, which means that if something moves there, it's indicative of something. So when we wake up in the morning and our heart rate variability is increased, for example, right, then, and more often than not, it would increase by three to four beats per minute. And if it's ever dropped, it will drop by one beat, but it won't drop by three to four beats, right? It's a very stable data point. So that what that increase is indicative of is the body is really and truly fighting some sort of infection or the training load or the workload that it's been put itself through is absorbed and it's not being able to cope with that with that training load. So you, you're reaching physical or either mental burnout and showing not in that marker. So we understand that, okay, we need to taper up for the next 72 hours. We need to taper our schedule. Heart rate variability is another interesting one. Heart rate variability is the one I ask everyone to use because it's the most sensitive biomarker in the entire ecosystem of biomarkers, right? It's the most sensitive one. 
The reason why it's so sensitive is because the technology that we use to capture it is also very, very sensitive. And it's not reached that level of stability in accuracy in terms of collaborating it. So when you look at a WHOOP or an Aura and it gives you an HRV point, it's captured that HRV point from about five minutes in the middle of deep sleep when your body is really still and really rested. So that HRV data point is indicative of you at your calmest, most deepest restful state. So if it's sitting at 34, it's letting you know that your body, even subconsciously, right, is struggling to reach deep levels of rest. You know, even at your deepest, most restful state, your body is being triggered or is thinking or is just not being able to calm down to that to that degree. It could be food, it could be climate, it could be something. We need to look, and there are a million things we can look at, but it's a massive signal to us, right? And the implication of a low HRV in the morning is, means that post-lunch, literally anything could trigger you off, you know? You're highly, highly susceptible to any emotional or external trigger in the environment, you know? But let's assume you, that you start off your day at 1995, you're going to be so much more resilient to stresses in your environment and there's a good chance you're going to get to the end of the day well-managed. You'll be able to get to rest, get to sleep, and you're managing it. So understanding how to use these biomarkers is critically important. Now, I'm not asking everyone to go and invest in a watch or an whoop or an aura or any other device. But what I do recommend everyone do is find one thing that they measure every single day. And for some clients of mine, it's as simple as just a bathroom scale that's digital. And you, make, and you weigh yourself at the same time every day. Because Nick, I'm a big believer that when you get one data point every single day at the same time, you've got one marker by which to refer every decision you've made in that 24-hour cycle. You know, did I sleep seven hours, six hours, nine hours? Did I drink alcohol? What time did I have dinner? How many meetings? Did I take a flight? Whatever. You're able to correlate it to that, you know? And because if you're not seeing something shift, you're not being able to understand, to granulate the impact of the decisions that you're making on a day-to-day basis. So what this one biomarker or this one data point does is it starts to leave the data point out. It starts to drive your awareness up, your awareness of what you're doing on a day-to-day basis with relation to your health and your environment. Yes. And on the practical side, say you were to do a daily weigh-in on a bathroom scale every day at 9 a.m., that might be great. You might start to notice patterns after a week or two or three or whatever. But just because you're weighing yourself at the same time, say 9 a.m., you also want to hold some of your lifestyle habits the same because you're fasting some days and then some days you're eating breakfast at 8 a.m. an hour before, you might see huge differences and that's not going to be meaningful or actionable because you're introducing other variables there. You want to hold as much constant as possible. Uh, Absolutely, absolutely. But the beautiful thing, Nick, is that once they start doing it, let's assume they're doing it at 9 o'clock and they're having breakfast at 8 o'clock. By day 3 or day 4, maybe day 7 or day 10, they will experiment where they'll skip that breakfast and they'll see the impact of it. Or they will, you understand? Because you've got a reference point, you're starting to micromanage different variables to see how it shifts. 
you're 100% right. We want to we want to keep things controlled. You want to be aware of it. But the availability of that data point makes you so hyper aware that the curiosity of the mind in itself will make you want to pull a few levers. So we have a couple options like the wearable data points such as resting heart rate, HRV. Yeah, you can use scale weight. If, you, if you're tracking sleep, sleep markers are great. Uh, probably of, of all the wearable devices that I've seen around sleep, the total sleep time is probably the most accurate of all the sleep markers. Another interesting one worth looking at, which is not very, very accurate and all devices don't give it, it's called sleep latency. Latency is the time you take to fall asleep from the time your bed hits, uh, your head hits the pillow. Optimal latency should be anywhere between about 10 and 16 minutes or 10 and 18 minutes. Okay. If you're falling asleep in under five minutes, that's a sign of chronic fatigue. If you're taking 45 minutes to an hour to sleep, it's also a sign of fatigue or a sign of a lot of mental tension, anxiety, you know, so measuring latency is also an indicator of, Hey, how much is going on in my body? You'll be able to control that. Uh, looking at deep sleep as well. Uh, if you are diabetic or pre-diabetic, uh, you don't have to do it every single day, but you can use a, uh, a CGM device, a continuous glucose monitoring device. Uh, and I tell people, I have a lot of uh, friends who use these CGM devices. When you use a CGM device, one is it's expensive. Right? The second is it's going to be on you consistently for uh, two weeks and you'll be tracking it and, and grabbing these sensors. But those two weeks for every one of you is not the time for you to be on your God's best behavior. You know, I have my friends who like, they're on their best, they're not touching desserts, not touching sugar, not touching anything, sleeping, fasting, doing everything, got a stable trend line. As soon as they take it off, their lifestyle changes. I said, actually, experiment when it's on so you can understand the impact of those decisions on your blood glucose. Don't be on your best behavior, you know? So remember this, that when you're tracking experiment, if you're not tracking all the time, when you decide to track experiment so you can correlate the decisions you make to what's happening with your internal physiology. And if you're doing consistently, then it's a different story. But if you're doing it very, very intimately, really and truly use that time for experimentation. Yeah. I'm not sure if it was these markers or something else, but you mentioned to me earlier that you're able to use your assessments and accurately predict who will perform well and who won't on game days. Yes, absolutely. These are a different set of tests that I use, and that's really my core part of my work, Nick. Is, uh, so I look at psychological personality markers and psychometric markers that I track. So I run people through a whole series of tests. Uh, and, and, you know, some of my background is in childhood trauma. So I even run the test on childhood trauma, but I use tests like the big five. I use subconscious tests. I also use conscious tests. I run them through for 24 hours before matches. I run them through a profile of mood states and I've been able to see some really, really fascinating data. So for example, we run one assessment called psychogeometrics where it's completely subconscious. The athletes don't even know what's happening and they are literally drawing interesting shapes and um, analyzing those shapes and decoding personality markers and then matching those personality markers to different positions in the sports field. And having run about 10,000 of these, I'm starting to see patterns with which personality markers 
match certain positions in certain fields. For example, in football, I'm seeing people who are more rational, methodical, uh, logical in their thinking, uh, who work in a framework and very process orientated. These people make phenomenal defenders. They tend to hold the back line a lot stronger and they stay in that position. I'm able to see that creative people uh, make better forwards. So they operate by their own set of rules. They have a high amount of conviction in the ideas, very free thinking. You know, they, they have, uh, they, they literally believe they can do anything and they make phenomenal defenders. I'm seeing that natural leadership type of personality, for example, dominate midfield positions quite strongly. So they're able to govern all of that. Then I layer on top of that, uh, something interesting now in the last 48 hours is I do a profile of mood states, which is also a validated test. Profile of mood states breaks things up into, I think, six states. We're looking at anger. We're looking at vigor. We're looking at tension. We're looking at depression. We're looking at mental fatigue. And we're looking at confusion. Now, what this data normally informed us was that if you had a high vigor, then it predisposed you to good performance. Uh, and all of the other five markers were really negative markers. And even when you calculate a total mood score, it's uh, you know your vigor minus the other five, which gives you a total mood score. But I've noticed a few things really interesting. I've noticed vigor, which is the, the, the score that determines good performance. I've noticed when a person has high vigor and a person has high anger, they're able to channel the anger positively and the outcome is far greater. better. But if a person has high anger and low vigor, the anger becomes catastrophic to how they behave in there. You know, I've also noticed running profile of mood states now for about almost a year on professional footballers that the most mentally tensed athletes are the ones who are performing the best and not the ones who are performing the worst. Right. And we layer on top of this, we know the, the interesting research around willpower and decision making. So we've seen, uh, well, that the more decisions you force to make in a day, the less willpower you have to when you're faced against a difficult situation. So what's really interesting is we've seen this dichotomy right now where players who are mentally tense are the best performing athletes, but those are also the athletes who have to make the most decisions in the day and are put into the most situations where they're interacting with external stresses in the public in the form of media, brand commitments, campaign commitments, all of that. And very often when it comes to a clutch match, these athletes here who have been carrying the team all the way to the end somehow just either fall short, you know, just short of it, and the entire team kind of collapses in there. So we've been now looking at interesting ways in which we protect the mental and conserve the mental energy of high-performing athletes uh, in there. So we've been, we've been able to track that. And then I think one of the most fascinating aspects that I've been really looking at and, and finding right now is the difference between what is a subconscious personality and what is conscious personality, you know, and I've been able to track that. And the reason why this is interesting for me is because if I dial up the pressure in a situation, a person will switch from what is conscious and learn to what is subconscious, innate and natural. Okay. So a person could bring a conscious personality, a conscious learned skill and a learned personality to a situation and constantly thrive, 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 thrive. But if you throw in into a high-pressure situation, 
And if he doesn't have the skill set or has not been familiar with that, he will completely default to a different behavior or a different way of acting. Understanding that is critically important. And a large part of my coaching right now is trying to bring these two worlds together. Wow, that's pretty cool. I'm looking forward to more developments as they come for the conscious and the subconscious and how you're able to like help athletes do better and optimize around those. I mean, we, we're already learning so much, you know. For example, I'll give you uh, one, one critical example is that let's assume we, we run a big five test. And uh, one of the interesting data points that we look from there is called extroversion, which is an indication of the amount of communication. It's, it's indicative of the communication in the team and the communication score. So when I look at the person's personality type and I look at how they are naturally and how they'd like to communicate. So we started to bring in certain interventions. Let's assume we, we want that person to start to speak more. Right? Then what we try to do is as a coaching staff, I'll give everybody messages where I'll ask them, that these are the players whose communication scores we want to raise gently. So every time there's a team meeting or every time you're speaking to them, call them to the front of the room or bring them to the center of the room because these people would naturally stay on the periphery. They'd want to blend into the walls. They want to, they'd want to fade into the backgrounds as such, you know, now for us to rewire that completely, we need to change the environment in there. So if we change them, if we bring them to a high concentration and energy environment, then all of a sudden their focus goes up and their likelihood of starting to communicate increases as well. And are you seeing good results from that? We are, we are. But, you know, we can, we can mold uh, in a squad of about 23 players. We, at any one time, we probably earmark no more than five. You know, anywhere between three to five that we're working on for a period of three to six months. You know, we're not trying to change the whole team at once. We keep marking key players, right? And we're just kind of doing molding that. And the others, we're just creating basic tools and interventions and, and doing that. What's also interesting is I use a lot of EEG devices that, that measure things like mental fatigue, focus, resilience. And this is interesting, you know, uh, for every single thing, you know, in the world, if I, if I asked you, you know, and, and Nick, we, we started by speaking about running and, and this is the most fascinating thing when I tell people how scary it is about how little is known about the world of psychology. It's, you take, you take a running shoe, okay? And from wherever we are, there's a good chance within two to three kilometers, you'd find a, a brand store. And in any brand store that's selling these famous running shoes, you go in there, there's someone there to help you. A random person, who's probably just finished his grade 12 at school can look at your feet right now and recommend a pair of shoes that would most likely increase your performance in some shape and form. You know, we know that because running as a science has evolved to that degree that we have so many tools and so many people are able to interpret the application of those tools to improve performance. But yet you take meditation, right? We've got a gazillion meditation teachers. And if I line you up with 15 players and you're on a meditation class, right? You cannot tell me who do you think is going to benefit the most from that. You know, yet we expect everyone to benefit in the same manner. So this was an interesting starting point for me. So I started measuring the, the 
impact of interventions on different personality markers. So I give meditation, I give breath work, I give hypnosis, I give subconscious programming, I give visualization, I give imagery, I give, you know, uh, rational emotional behavioral therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy exercises to everyone. And I'm measuring through EEG activity how their mental resilience, their focus, all of these things, these markers are actually shifting. So now I'm able to codify which intervention responds best to which personality type or which uh, marker in able to shift them in the, in the right direction. So cool. I was about to ask you if you're combining your assessments with anything else like blood work or genetic analysis or EEG, like brainwave mapping. And also, like I think there's a big future in sports to bio-individualize the training and the accessories and all the performance-related stuff to the individual athlete. Like Yes, they have to continue doing their sports-specific stuff, but also there might be a reason to cut them out of this team run a little bit earlier or to add an extra set on some kind of lift for their unique physiology and psychology. We absolutely are doing that. We're already doing customized and personalized plans for training. We're just not doing it for psychology. And we're starting to bring that into the football team. And to talk about the biomarkers that I layer in, yes, I do. I do look at all the blood markers. I look at all the heart rate. I look at the catapult data, GPS data. I look at the heart rate data that's coming in. But all of those data points are informing me about this here. Because why? You know, I'm making sure that the physiology is stable before I make an assessment on the psychology. You know, so that's what I'm looking at these markers for. Because cognitive stress will shift one of these markers, will we'll shift the physiology. We, we already know that. But I'm just making sure that the person's health markers are stable enough before I can make informed decisions about their cognition. But we're definitely layering all of that in there. If we see the data jump on the, physio- on the psychological marker side, and let's assume the data is also moving, is very noisy on the physiology side, right? then what we do is we split the two and we, and we get them to work on the physiology more and get them stable first. Because we can see that one is, is impacting the other too much right now you know what we want is in the in in elite peak performance you need stable physiology right for you to stabilize psychology if the physiology is noisy and moving up and down if a person doesn't have control over their own body right the probability of them having control of their mind is highly unlikely but if they have control over the body we can now start to stabilize the mind and stabilize their focal points I also want to touch on your approach to or approaches to bioharmonizing the body before we wrap up. For me, I, I work with the five elements and I think biorhythms around the five elements are critical. You know, I used to be this person who uh, who took a lot of supplements, you know, and and every time I read an article, someone else was recommending a different supplement. And, you know, I was like, oh, great, I should do this. And it got to a stage where, you know, you're having your breakfast look like 10 capsules and I, was, and I, I pretty much was sure. I said, you know, it, I, I don't know what good this is doing because I've got no way to measure it, but I'm pretty sure all of these capsules aren't great for me as well. You know, I didn't want to get as much of those uh, gelatin capsules or whatever that was in me. So I, I kind of 
hit the reset button there. And I went back to Vedic wisdom, ancestral, really ancestral way of thinking. And ancestral way of thinking works on the five elements. They say fire, water, air, space, and earth. And it gives us a beautiful way in which to bring our body into rhythm with these five elements. So the first it's saying is fire is sun, sun energy, which we need to absorb, which is vitamin D. So according to Vedic sciences, it says, wake up before the rising sun and try to look at the rising sun, right, for about 15 minutes. As the sun is coming up the horizon, look at it. It's the safest time to look at that sun, right? Look at that, that absorb that. That, that vitamin D in from there. And it also resets or kickstarts almost about 30 to 40 neurological and biological programs in the body. The second thing is after 9 p.m., it says when the sun's really hot and it's bad for your retina, then vegetables, for example, absorb sun's energies very, very well. So take your vegetables and leave them out in the sun for about 45 minutes to an hour before you eat them. Allow them to absorb that energy and then don't overcook them. You just clean them, wash them, and eat them in that way because they've also absorbed that energy. And mushrooms, for example, absorb vitamin D better than us, in fact. You know, they, they really pull, pull it in there. So that was the, the fire energy, really looking at, at that there. You know, also you could bring in, uh, and in certain climate conditions, like, you know, uh, being that sun exposure. So we've seen, uh, infrared saunas and steam baths and other natural way to grade. But looking at sun is a natural way to, to absorb sunlight. Water was spoken about really interestingly. The best way to absorb water into the body is by eating 60% of our diet should be combining foods that release water when cooked. So water-rich foods. So spinach, tomatoes, mushrooms, fruits, anything that releases water when heated or cooked is a water-rich food, and 60% of your hydration in a day should come from that, not from drinking. Drinking water would, would flush out. So that was the next thing that I did. So I brought in a lot of greens, a lot of spinach, a lot of fruit. In fact, I eat a significant amount of fruits and, and vegetables on a, on a day-to-day basis. The, the air is the breath work. So what Vedic science says is start your day and end your day with breath work because it speaks of two nadis or two energy channels in our body that get balanced through the in and out, through the inhalation and exhalation. We see a lot of this being spoken about uh, in biohacking and biophysiology and biorhythm sciences right now, where the inhalation stimulates the sympathetic nervous system, the exhalation stimulates the parasympathetic nervous system. Vedic science speaks of something else, which is even more powerful. It speaks of the holding phase in between. You know, they call that uh, kumbhaka. Kumbhaka is the holding phase in between. Right? That holding phase is really exceptionally powerful, exceptionally powerful. And Nick, you'll be very interested in this, that that holding phase of our breath has inspired in me an entire look at suspension and the role of suspension in our life. So I've seen, you know, like, for example, the amount of strength you can develop by just holding onto a certain weight to the point where it becomes an eccentric load. You know, you know, even in psychology, they say, you know, holding onto emotion can be healing, can allow you to uh, process that emotion. Holding your breath in an exhalated phase increases the carbon dioxide content. It's great for bronchodilation. Increasing uh, holding your breath with 
air in you stimulates soma or the the pineal gland, which can give you a psychedelic experience. So that holding is really, really critical, and that has inspired so much in me. So that was the third one, the air. The space is significant of fasting. I told you once a month it's non-negotiable for me to go on a 24-hour fast. So I, I recommend a lot of fasting. And interestingly, you know, you'll see that fasting is the one practice that is common in every single religion and every culture in the world irrespective of it. We fight about so many other things. The one thing we all do is we fast or we cleanse because that fasting is a, is significant of really cleansing. And it's telling us that, you know, the body needs that cleansing. You cleanse the body, you give it a chance to, to cleanse the mind in some shape and form. And the earth was uh, eating that whole plant-based food, you know, that's super important for our, our gut bacteria and doing that. So, the way I look at everything is I look at these five elements. And these five elements for me, they look at the relationship between uh, the gut and the brain. They look at the relationship between everything. And speaking about hacking, I break everything down into certain channels. You know, So the one, like I said, that we just mentioned, that's very, very important. We started off the podcast with the voice-brain connection. Then the next one that everyone is aware of is the, the gut-brain connection, you know, the relationship between that. The, the next critical one that's important is the foot-core connection for good mobility, you know, the relationship between the muscles of the foot, how they stimulate it, and the core. And similarly, there are many such connections that work in the body that are very, very direct relationships. When you start to honor these relationships here, right, then, you know, movement, synchronicity, harmony, they, they all seem to flow in a very, very beautiful way. I especially like the idea of leaving the fruits and vegetables, the produce outside in the sun for about 45 minutes before eating it because I know that it's, it has all kinds of benefits, like that sunlight, that spectrum, that to my day. But I've never heard that one specifically and it, it makes intuitive sense to me. So I'll have to give that a shot. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's, it's actually better. And you, you, you'd notice, run it as an experiment, just with the vegetables that you're doing, break them, split them into two, leave half outside and leave inside. And you'll notice a distinct taste difference in them as well. It's like charging the produce. Literally. It feels yeah. like that and tastes like that. Yeah. And I love your elegant system of actually just like looking at the different elements and then establishing one or more habits in each of them each day to stay in balance, in rhythm with the natural world. I think the world of biohacking really took us further away from harmony as opposed to bringing us closer to it. And, and that's what we should be doing. We should be looking at what are the naturally occurring rhythms and processes in the body and what can we do to bring us closer to that as possible. You know, and so you have your psychagian rhythm, which is important. You have, you know, for women, the hormonal systems that are working and how hormones are secreted. It's really critically important to understand what is a natural rhythm of the body and operate in accordance with that. I think it's fundamentally important that we start to approach things like that. And, and when you understand connections with things, it's so important. I, I touched on the, the foot core connection. So important. One of the best practices someone can do is just take your shoes and socks off and walk barefoot on earth, you know, just ground that energy. You know, it's a science called grounding. But 
within 15 to 20 minutes of just spending time barefoot, if you start to walk really slowly, you'll notice that every single time your foot hits the ground, your lower abdominal muscles, your pelvic core tightens, it crunches. Because that's what's supposed to happen. You know, when your foot hits the ground, your core is supposed to hold tight to stabilize the spine as you're moving one step forward. The shoes that we've worn have severed that connection in there. Now, reestablishing that connection is not difficult. It just requires a little bit of mindfulness in terms of that. Even a simple thing like uh, our gut bacteria, it only requires mindfulness in terms of the diversity of foods that we eat. You know, you bring in different vegetables, different cultures that are obviously clean, you know, uh, and you start to reculture bacteria in, in a new and, and a beautiful way. So all of these things require a level of mindfulness. And, and for those people who are really interested in the body, there's, there's, a, there's a sentence that I use and I coach a lot. I say subtract before you add. Subtract before you add means you've already got enough on your plate. Start getting things off. You know, you already got too much to think about, too much to focus on. The probability of you living a long and healthy life is very, very small if you're going to keep adding more things to your plate. Because the more things you get on there, the more distracted you are. The more distracted you are, the less likely you are going to pay attention to these naturally occurring rhythms that are going to keep you healthy. There's a good chance you're going to try to circumnavigate anything and all the money you make, you're going to spend it to try to fix your health. So, you know, so subtract before you add and your awareness will go up. Once your awareness goes up, in, in, in sport, uh, we show things to athletes because we tell them what is seen cannot be unseen. So similarly, when your awareness goes up, when you see the impact of it, you cannot unsee it. You, know, you may forget it for a few days, but you'll come back to it because you're already aware of how powerful it is. I love that. That's such a good reminder. That's precisely what I did. It applies to sports. It applies to life in general. It's like once you get certain workload on your plate, you start losing the ability to listen to yourself and to tune in. And that's how you, that's like the fundamental like foundation of everything. If you lose that, you got to reestablish it somehow. And that can be getting an assistant that can be getting housekeeping that can be getting a million different things just to like lighten the workload on you so that you can like reestablish that and then build from there. Well, Shamal, I want to talk about a couple more things. I said I was going to let you go right now, but I lied. I have one more thing I want to ask you about quickly before that. And that is if there are any tips or tricks or strategies you have to help your athletes travel better and more effectively, they minimize the jet lag and the cellular damage that's occurring to their bodies from, say, like a 19 and a half hour, hour flight across the world from India, say, to the U.S.? Quite honestly, I think one of the, the simplest things that we do is, you know, we, we fast during our flights, we hydrate a lot, we fast during our flights, and we try to adjust our eating plans and according to our new time zone. That is critically one of the things we do. There's also certain devices that we use. There's, for example, there's a Lumos eye mask that we use that has uh, an infrared light that kind of, even while you're sleeping, it tends to activate the brain in the time zone that you that you are. So your brain's actually waking up 
in the time zone that you will be in, even though you you are asleep. So we use some of these technologies in there. Uh, the things that we're doing whilst we're traveling is obviously we, we're managing hydrations, we're managing salts, we're using compression devices, compression stocks. We're trying to, uh, these are the basic ones that we're trying to do. And and as soon as we land on the ground, the first thing we do is we move. Okay, so movement within a couple hours of landing in the ground is absolutely critical to there. And we try as fast as possible to reset to the to the sleep time in that clock there. Sometimes we would use uh you know melatonin or would use a sleeping tablet because we found that if you fasted in the plane, literally just by getting to bed on the first night in the right time zone, you can circumnavigate everything and hit back into rhythm. Any other gadgets or gear you want to mention? Because I, I know you mentioned the sleep mask, and that's pretty cool. And I'm sure people hearing this are going to want to know about any other systems or devices or gadgets you have to help that adjustment. The one main thing that, that all our my professional athletes travel with is we travel with the exact same pillow. You know, the yeah, so pillow is is critically important for us for sleep. So in their flight, they'll sleep with that same pillow, they plaque it, they they most of them are flying in business class, so they get a chance to to sleep. Okay. The pillow is the number one thing that you should be traveling with in there. Uh in terms of other devices that we use whilst we're traveling. Sometimes we use compression socks, so we use uh, graduated compression on the legs if it's a very, very long flight, but not too much. We generally, quite honestly, in the plane, doing very, very little. We All of our management starts uh, once we hit the ground. And what does the compression do? The compression is just circulating blood flow. It's preventing the pooling of blood, you know? So, yeah. So what happens is in uh, because of the pressure in the plane, blood tends to pool in our legs and in our joints and you'll get uh, inflammation around those joints. So if you don't uh, increase the circulation throughout the flight there, then you increase your chance of recovery. So for example, if you're an athlete who's running and your, your blood is pooled in your ankles and your knees, then the ankle joint is not as stable on the foot, so you increase your risk of a sprain or an ankle strain uh, as soon as you're running on a on a surface like uh, soil or grass, you know, because of that. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to manage all of those uh, micro things that that most people are not aware of, but we see it in our data in terms of the number of risks that are going up and the types of injuries we're getting. Yeah, especially across an entire team. I know when I'm traveling for a long period of time, I'll be the person in the back of the plane doing squats and lunges and stretches and like mobility stuff every couple hours and it's not the same as compression gear but it feels like it makes a big difference to me as well it is and then you know and and as far as possible when you're lying we're trying to obviously keep uh, the legs uh, elevated a, a little bit so sometimes you can't have them elevated so the graduated compression uh socks what they do and if they and some of them are mechanical as well so they're pumping the the blood literally out of there but if you don't have that just raising your legs up will allow the blood to, to drain out from those legs, you know. Well, Shama, we've covered a lot in one episode. I'm going to let you go in just a second. If people want to connect with you, grab your book, or just to stay in touch, how do they go about that? I think my book is called Breathe, Believe, Balance. I think they can get it on Amazon. Uh, it should be available on most Amazons. If you want to follow me, I'm uh, on Instagram. It's at Shamal, S-H-A-Y-A-M-A-L. Uh, you can find me even on LinkedIn at Shamal Balaji. Uh, Twitter, no more Twitter, X, I think, yeah, Shamal V. 
Amazing. Thank you for that. And I will put a link to all those channels in the show notes for this episode. And now the final real question before we sign off, and that is if you were to imagine that all knowledge on earth is lost, but you get to save the works of three teachers, who would you choose and why? The one book that's impacted my life the most is what was the Bhagavad Gita because I, I spent four years living in an ashram. So I definitely want to save that. It's been one of the most impactful books in my life and it's taught me a lot and taught my athletes a lot. I like the teachings of Muhammad Ali. You know, I think yeah, Muhammad Ali was a, was a great disciplinarian, but just the caveats with how we move through life and how we inspired at a time was remarkably interesting. The, the one teacher that I am learning more and more about and I'm extremely fascinated by is Karl Marx, the German historian, because so many people were influenced by his writings, you know, and you're looking at all, all walks of life from socialism to communism to democracies. Everyone read and was influenced by him. The great thinker in some shape and form. And, uh, so I, I love the work of Karl Marx and I think, uh, Probably the last one was, um, I think, Einstein. I liked Einstein's thinking. For me, it's, it was a tough choice between probably Carl Jung and Einstein. But, uh, you know, Einstein and, and his application of compounding has, has had such an impact in our world in terms of finance and how we've grown and how we've thought about everything that uh, it would be an absolute travesty to have lost that. Well, I love that you pushed the limits there. And instead of giving me three, give me five. We'll accept it. That's great. And now if there's one thing that your tribe does not know about you, your athletes do not know about you, let's share it right here, right now. <laughs> one thing. Well, I'm, I'm a crazy marathon runner. And uh, so I don't know how many people know. I've, I've, I'm sitting on five stars right now. I've run five majors. I've run 48 marathons across six continents, five stars. But my one dream is to uh, summit the highest peak on each of the continents and run a full marathon on each of that. So I've got uh, two peaks done, six continents done, uh, five stars. So let's hope in the next couple of years I get to tick all of those off. Nice. That is quite the feat. Well, Shamal, for people who have made it this far with us, about an hour and a half, what are your takeaways for them that you hope they leave this interview with? The main takeaways is... Uh, to really and truly, if you're going to invest in one thing, start investing in uh, A, peeling away the layers of understanding your own personality because your personality is an inroad to how you show up in the world. It gives you a hell of a lot of insight. And it's not as simple as just the, the data that comes from a Mayor's Briggs assessment. There's a lot more that you can do. Invest some time in sort of understanding that. The second one is invest in measuring one thing. Because that one thing is really and truly a, uh, it's an inroad to every decision you make. But if I can give you the most powerful tip I ever give anyone, anyone, I tell them, most of the world thinks in binary. They think things are either success or failures. Most athletes even think, they think, I've either won or I've lost things. If you can train your brain to think in probability, your stress will drop significantly more. You'll take far more risks and you'll end up winning a lot more of the time. So when, what does thinking probability means when it means before, when you're doing something, start to evaluate based on the amount of preparedness you got, the amount of resources you got, what is the probability of success? And at the end of it, 
don't look at whether you won or you lost. Look at what percentage of something could you have improved and how much of it were you right. And once you start identifying things and probabilities, right, then you don't see yourself as a failure anymore. and You'll take a lot more risks. I love that. That is the perfect way to close. I haven't heard that. And it's such, it seemed like such a basic idea. I'm surprised it's not common knowledge. Well, Shamal, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me and imparting so much wisdom on the episode today. Thank you, Nick. I, I was really looking forward to this. I, I spoke a lot, uh, but thank you for giving me the opportunity. I, it was really such a pleasure. Pleasure is mine. I'm Nick Urban here with Shamal Valabji, signing out from mindbodypeak.com. Have a great week and be an outlier. Thank you for tuning in to this episode. Head over to Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating. Every review helps me bring you thought-provoking guests. As always, you can find the show notes for this one at mindbodypeak.com slash and then the number of the episode. There, you can also chat with other peak performers or connect with me directly. The information depicted in this podcast is for information purposes only. Please consult your primary healthcare professional before making any lifestyle changes.